Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Carol Sanford, author of The Responsible Business and her latest book, The Responsible Entrepreneur. She's also a mentor to numerous people within the permaculture community, including Ethan Rowland of Appleseed Permaculture and the Regenesis Group. With both of them, she helps to connect our work as designers with the business community. Along the way today, we talk about her background as a university professor and in business development for companies of all sizes, including many large ones that you've definitely heard about. We also discuss different ways to measure business success, including metrics, as well as the ways that we can discover what it is that's the essence of our work, including principles, social structures, and finding meaning in what it is that we do. That idea of essence is more than just the activities that we engage in and is about the core of our work and what it is that's bigger than ourselves. Along the way, we also talk about hierarchy, anarchy, and responsibility, as well as mechanistic systems, the human potential movement, and living systems. This is a fast-paced, dynamic conversation. Relax and hold on. There's a lot of information here, and it's worth your time whether or not you currently operate a permaculture or other business. The seeds of thought you'll find within are useful in finding and refining your niche, whatever it is. You can find Carol and her work at carolsanford.com. There's a link to her site and other resources mentioned in the show notes at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you enjoy the variety of guests and topics on this show, you can help support future productions. October starts my end-of-year fundraising campaign to begin preparing for 2015. Find out how to make a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Before we begin, Jen Mendez at permikids.com has a number of interesting educational opportunities coming up. The first of those are her Edge Alliances. On Sunday, November 9th from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern, Jen is joined by Marissa Gates of Permacognition to explore how to cultivate holistic, positive patterns of the mind. On Wednesday, November 12th from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Jen is joined by Amelia and Connie to discuss Everything Gardens, Designing Mind-Body Landscapes. In addition to the Edge Alliances, Jen is also offering an educational design course to help educators and families design holistic, integrated education plans useful whether you are homeschooling, unschooling, or want to enrich a child's educational experience when they are not involved in another program or school. You'll find links to the Edge Alliances and the educational design course in the show notes. Now then, on to Carol Sanford. Then, Carol, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background, and we can then lead into the conversation about being a responsible entrepreneur. I think probably the part of my background that's relevant to this conversation is when I decided I was not going to be a college professor because you couldn't change the world enough from there, so much of your energy went into politics. But the fun part of that was I was teaching in a program at San Jose State University which had anyone who entered to get a master's degree in either business, urban planning, or information systems, then called cybernetic systems, studied in all three programs. I was one of six core faculty. That was quite extraordinary because it meant that we were in Silicon Valley first, where some of the most exciting things were happening. We had master's students which were coming out of a brand newly formed company called Apple, one that had been around for quite a few years called Hewlett-Packard and one that had been around even longer called IBM, plus National Semiconductor and quite a few others. Now, the interesting thing was that these were very innovative, very full of energy, as much of it still is, 
but they were studying also courses in urban planning as well as information systems, which was fairly new to them since this was in the uh, late 1970s and early 80s. That program was killed because of one of the deans who felt like it was a waste of the students' time. But it led me on a journey, which was finding that Barney Oliver, who was at Hewlett Packard at that point, uh, head of R&D, I think he was employee number three or four for HP, he felt like what I was teaching and the way I saw systems world was amazing. And it was much the way he had studied as a scientist. And he began to connect me with his friends. Now, his friends were the head of Xerox and American Airlines. That process allowed me to start to influence business at a time when it was much less controversial to have conversations about how the impact was on business. The good news was that because I had a really strong uh, testimonial and referral system, I was able to move pretty quickly across a broad spectrum of industries. Out of that came my ability to offer a whole different way to run a business. So I am very contrarian. I don't believe in most of what people talk about now as a way to run a business like sustainability, which for me fragments and takes it as a side program with a special officer, which is not embedding it. Nor do I believe in any of the rewards and recognition incentive programs, because all of those make people pay more attention to who's approving of them than what it is that they're serving. I have now done this for almost 40 years, and in that process, I have been blessed to meet some extraordinary leaders, and some of those were at the, the quote, bottom of the organization, such as Isaac Michiel in South Africa, Colgate-Palmolive, who led a major turnaround in health in Soweto and Alexandria Township, as well as economic development as a part of our business effort. And I was able to write books in some depth about those experiences, about those clients, colleagues, and students. That one was called The Responsible Business, Reimagining Sustainability and Success. I didn't want the word sustainability, but I lost that battle with my publisher. And the most recent one is The Responsible Entrepreneur for Game-Changing Archetypes for founders, leaders, and impact investors. And again, these are stories I know well. So although I don't consider myself a writer, I am an author and have a few other books, but those are the two that really matter. That probably gives you a flavor for who I am and how I got a bit to where I am. It's always interesting for me, the roads that people walk through and the people who they've interacted with along the way. And that crucible, if you will, of time and place in the late 70s and early 80s and everything that was happening in that area and the access to those individuals who were doing that kind of work then and how that provides an opportunity for you in your role as an instructor and then as you left that community in order to influence the way that people practice business. You know, there's one other little piece you remind me of that might matter here is I was at UC Berkeley in the middle of the free speech movement and the war in Vietnam. And I was very much an activist. And I noticed that we were able to move a few things, but it felt so small and it felt so painful. And I felt like that politics was not going to be it. And figuring out that business could move things pretty rapidly if they wanted to was also a big shift in that. Is it because of the resources that business has access to? Is it the private nature of many businesses, even publicly traded companies still have their officers and such that kind of work within that structure of the business in order to move 
the direction that it's heading in? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons, I think, why it it is better. One is that business affects everything. Government affects everything, but not in a way that's usually changeable. It takes forever. You wait for elections and et cetera. But what I noticed was that businesses could change families. So, And I had done a lot of work on helping raise children in a very different way, a responsible way, in a way they became self-determining. And I could affect families through business. I could affect communities because one of my undergraduate degrees is in economics, microeconomics, how you work on a smaller scale. But there's another reason, and this is the two-edged sword to it. It is because it is measured by the effect they can produce on people who pay them money to stay in business. So, for example, when I tried working with not-for-profits for years, there is kind of a dispersed reflection back to you. Whereas with business, it's very focused. If you can show people how it is they can make money and do it responsibly and do it in a way that changes the lives of the people who buy from them and therefore the community, you have much more leverage. And it's actually possible to change boards of directors and senior people as long as you don't go in as an advocate, which is what I was doing when I was an undergraduate and graduate student. You go in as an educator. And you're educating them on something they want to do. And you just slide and embed this thing called responsibility and a way of doing it that gives them a way to live with principles they actually hold. They tend to throw out those principles when they can't see how to do them both at the same time. But I knew from a very young age how to do both at the same time. So that's why business works so well. When you mention principles... Are you acting in the role of an educator to bring those principles of responsibility into the conversation or to get the people who you're working with to find their own principles that reflect responsibility? Neither, really. I don't work on educating people about principles. I work on educating them about earnings margins and cash flow, on how to build markets, on how to create pursuits and partnerships that make a business grow. Now, the difference is that I do that in a way that responsibility is embedded in just how I ask the questions, in the frameworks that I give. What's amazing is if you ask questions, so for example, two core, two or three core aspects. One is what's unique and distinctive about this business. Once you have tapped the essence, not the made up idea about what they'll do to be different, but the essence of that company when it was founded, and when a company is founded, it is always founded with a high intention. I have, I've never met the people who found one in order to do harm. Most of them found it in order to really make a difference. I go back to that, like I did that with DuPont, and we discovered their whole life was about managing risk. And when you see that it's about managing risk, you're able to start thinking about how could you do that for the fishing industry in a way that doesn't harm fish or waters. That's one of the core things. The second thing I do is I ask them about global imperatives, which is another way of saying what is non-negotiable and how the world works. So we have conversations about what's non-negotiable in how water systems work. Not how do you cut the amount of water, but how do water systems work? What's non-negotiable in how democracy works? Because all of them want democracy to work. At least I've never worked in countries where no one's trying to pursue democracy. You start and you embed and you anchor things to that. All I'm doing is allowing them to speak to one another and talk out loud about how we're going to set direction. Then we find a unique, what I call, implicate intersection where they 
can make a difference with those two things in mind, their essence and the global imperatives. And then like with seventh generation, we were able to position them as bringing health at the intersection of personal and ecological living. That's a pretty higher order thing to do. That kind of work means that the values which most of us hold, a few people are really broken and have been destroyed as children or by some trauma in their life. But most, I have never yet met an executive who was evil. They have learned to make trade-offs and to quiet their inner conscience. I give them a way not to have to do that, to make it a part of how they run a business. So I don't teach them about ethics. I don't teach them about principles. I never talk about how it is you should do less bad things in the world. I ask them questions about how things work when they're whole and complete. And now how can we design a business to do that? Very different entry point. This is a world completely foreign to me. I was raised in very small businesses, very mom and pop. If we had enough money at the end of the week, that was enough. To think about this large scale position, or even just something that happens beyond one storefront or just a very small reach. And I wanted to talk with you because it's one of the questions that the permaculture community seems to keep running up against is how do we grow outside the space that we're in? And I don't have an answer for that. And it continues to be this, well, what's my next step? How do I get from where I am to just having something that operates enough to replace the job that I currently have? But this is much, much bigger than that. It is. And some of my dearest friends and colleagues are embedded in the permaculture community. Regenesis Group, whom you know a little bit about, have answered that question in a way that at least has one larger scale. And I bring them in to lots of projects I do to try and educate businesses how to do it, how to grow and how to, I don't even like the word scale because it sounds like just get bigger. I use the word growth because there are different kinds of growth. There's expansion where you consume more resources. There's extension where you use your existing cleverness. And as a result, you can move it into some other arena and make use less resources and evolution kind of growth, which is where you begin to have innovation that finds ways to have everything be healthier as it moves its own scale out. Permaculture is already embedded with that philosophy. So any small business, the question that it needs to ask, and a permaculture practitioner, you know, is a small business, usually a solopreneur or a very small one. The question is, how can they become connected to other communities which seem to have the same challenges? So the way Regenesis has done that is they've created an extraordinary process which takes the principles of permaculture. You know, the the idea that nothing is wasted. Um, I can't recite them all myself right this minute. But if you take those principles like Regenesis has done, they say, How does that apply on a bigger scale? So I think the problem that all small businesses get into is they are thinking about what they do, not what underlies what they do. So Regenesis said, and it's not just permaculture principles, they also use living systems, not systems dynamics out of MIT, but living systems frameworks, which I use. And they've combined those two things and said, how do we lift that to a different level? So there are some of them, and many permaculture practitioners do become educators for others, but they don't actually think about how could I go do work like where Genesis does potentially of going and helping 
around projects which could use those principles to help a community build something that's much bigger. So I think in a lot of ways, that's what I'm doing with a business is helping it look at what are the things that are core to what you know how to do. I'll give you a really quick example. Procter & Gamble had been making flour for years, taking wheat and grinding it and had built machines and invented their own. And instead of just saying, how can we make more flour for more people? They said, what else needs grinding? Because we seem to be experts at that. And pretty soon they had Folgers Coffee. The idea that you know how to do something that could be extended, therefore extension growth, is a really important part of taking a small business. I don't know why this is making any sense at all. No, it very much is. There's my formal background is I'm currently a graduate student in environmental education. And a lot of the reform that's occurring within those conversations is about finding a calling before you find a career. And that's turned part of the permaculture conversation into taking what it is that you already do and applying permaculture to it. And I'm thinking about the different people who I've met who are really good designers. Well, how can they take their design work and extend it to somewhere else where they can bring permaculture into that design work as opposed to trying to bring something else into permaculture, if that makes sense? Actually, I suspect there should be a little bit of both, but let me tell you how I'd frame it slightly differently than what you said, because there's the you and your calling, and then there's the permaculture. I believe that part of being entrepreneurial, which is what I want to move small businesses into being able to do, is to bring their own essence, their own uniqueness, their own distinctiveness, a piece of which gets applied to a calling, but it's bigger than them. It's something you're born with, and you say, How can I use or see permaculture as an instrument and myself as an instrument and apply it into a world that needs both of those? Because one of the things that I see with social entrepreneurs, which scares me, to tell you the truth, is that they lose their own uniqueness at the altar of doing good. That sounds like I shouldn't say something like that. Of course, we want them to give up their ego, but that's very different. What a responsible entrepreneur does that's not what a social entrepreneur does is they hang on. No, they much better than that. They connect to, they stay, they stand in their essence. They look at that which needs wholeness, which could be an ecological system. It could be a social system. could be a criminal justice system. It could be, you know, a system that, that cares for the elderly. And they say, how is it I bring uniquely what I am to that which needs that gift And how do I bring a discipline? And in this case, we're talking about permaculture. How do I bring that discipline into it that has principles which can allow me to embed me and it in me into this new situation? So it's sort of a triangulated connection. I don't think that's different than what you said, but maybe a twist on it. It's a different perspective, I think, around the same kind of idea. Now, I'm going to have to take a moment and let my thoughts catch up to everything that we just spoke about, because that was very, very rapid fire. And usually four or five times a year, and I'm doing 50 plus interviews a year, I find myself feeling out of my element. And now is very much one of those moments. I think most people feel out of their element when I am speaking about these ideas. And I don't even feel like, I don't even want to say my ideas. Because the ideas we're talking about are from a different paradigm. 
let me talk just a moment about that because I think it's something you could relate to and it will give us a common reference point. Most people think the average world for the last 200 years has been a machine world paradigm. Everything is a part, a piece, and even humans are a part and a piece of that. We're a clock, we're a, you know, uh, I mean, everybody who has used this has used some kind of machine. We're, now our brains are computers. It causes us to build anything, whether it is a business or whether it's a farm, thinking of it as dead. And it's a really horrible thing. About 50 years ago, there was a school of thought which came in that said, you know, it's really hard to manage these machines called humans in manufacturing. You can't just predictably make them do stuff. And there was a guy named John Watson who said, I, he said this to the Rockefellers and John Paul Gettys and all those rich, mostly oil uh, tycoons. I could show you how to manage your people so that you're in control and not them. If you'll just set up me up with this lab at Yale University. And once you give me that lab, I will run tests and I will show you how to manipulate people. That became known as behaviorism. We now have in this culture these two paradigms kind of mixed together where we've set up people as though they are part machines where we give them rules, regulations, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that, you're fired. And behavioral guidelines, B.F. Skinner, et cetera, where we said we'll give you incentives, rewards, we'll recognize certain people, we'll model the right kind of behavior, uh, we'll give you feedback, actually feedback's out of the machine metaphor. It's not in nature or even in the way humans work, because we're our nature. That became a driving force in business. And it is something that anybody who has been through permaculture, both of these we know are false, because <laughs> humans are not machines, nor do they need to be and have to be managed and manipulated from the outside. There was also another school of thought which was emerging in the 60s, particularly, got really strong in the 70s, there was the human potential movement. And that was a bunch of folks who said, it's really awful that we're treated like rats in a maze or like machine cogs when we have conscience or consciousness, at least. And Virginia Satir, Abraham Maslow, so a whole set of people really worked to bring this new paradigm into how psychology was taught. You found it showing up in psychology schools so that it wasn't all just behavioral, although it's still behavioral and machines still drive probably 60 to 70 percent of how everything is designed, including a family, a school system, a business. Those practices of human potential got people at least saying, wait, we should do things like pay attention to the differences in people. There were prominent programs like first break all the rules, now find all your strengths. Why don't you manage people by where their potential is. That whole set of work has started to really drip in to the system. The problem was, the limitation of it is that it doesn't include natural systems. It doesn't see humans as embedded in larger systems. The paradigm I'm speaking from is it's rejecting, basically, although there are ways we can use behavioral on ourselves, so I'm not saying that it's all bad, but usually when it's an externally imposed thing, it ain't so great. And human potential has huge shortfalls in that it doesn't allow us to see that everything that humans do is a part of a larger system. So that system is the living system paradigm. It's very hard to get people to think through, but you think that is where you and I cross over. 
And anyone who is in permaculture, if you think about how you're building, let's just take a permaculture farm, even if it's small, you know, everything from a quarter acre to five acres, there's the built in the idea that humans are a part of that, where the food is, so the access, how nature really works, where, you know, nothing works as a monoculture. I go do the same thing in a business. I help people see that they shouldn't design the way people work as though they are machines, nor should they design it as though they are rats in a maze or as though they matter and nothing in nature matters. So I help them learn to think in a permaculture way. I don't know whether that lets you feel a little less out of your element. I think you think exactly the same way I do. That's why I agreed to do this. Otherwise, I would not have been at all interested in this. Well, I appreciate you being interested because that, that represents, it represents a holistic approach to the way all of the different pieces of the human experience in the natural world fit together. There's an argument within the environmental education community about what is nature, what is natural. And I look at the built world and I go, well, we are human beings and we are animals and this is something that we have built. So how does all this fit together with the world that we have and the people that we are? Yes, absolutely. The thing that I would add to that, I have dear colleagues who talk a lot about how this work is holistic and and I agree, but it misses one flavor that I think is really important, which is the working of a system when it's whole and complete. Because a whole can easily become a machine view without even noticing it, but at a higher level. So this is a whole. It's treated as a whole, but it's not a static whole. It's not homeostatic, and it's not even just heterostatic. It's in evolution. So the question I work with people on is, how is it they see a system, a whole, as a living dynamic and ask how it works when it's, it's working as a whole and it's working completely and it's in evolution? So it's getting that dynamic mind and that evolutionary view of a whole that matters. I mean, you know that when you think of permaculture, you wouldn't look at that quarter acre little tiny home plot as the whole that that's the way it is and it's forever. No, it's alive. And that separates it from the mechanistic view because the mechanistic view is more of a static, once we build the machine, it runs and just repair the pieces. Right. It runs down and, you know, so yes, you have to repair them. And that is part of the problem of both the behavioral view and the machine view is they're both entropic. They're based on Newton's idea of, of everything runs downhill. And it's true in the physical world. But it is not true in the emotional world or the mental world. In a living system, it's not even true there. Although things die, they don't cease to have utility. They even, you know, our bodies, if we had the good sense to make them a part of Earth again directly instead of encased in things that they're held as a whole forever, then now we are food for a more living system. So yes, it's much more about the living nature of it. That's why I call the top paradigm the living systems view. And I've written papers about this. If anyone who's listening to this would find it valuable to find, I've published papers even at Wharton Business School on these paradigms and other places that uh, sometimes help people make sense or even have a language for things they feel and don't have a way to describe. So I will, whenever it seems appropriate, I'll share how to get connected to those papers. If you'd like to go ahead and share that information with us, that'll give me a moment to collect my thoughts. Okay. <laughs> well, there are a couple of ways. 
one is that I'm happy for people to email me at carol at carolsanford.com, which is pretty easy to remember. Carol is no E, just C-A-R-O-L at carolsanford, all one word, dot com. You cannot directly download them from my website currently, but you can go to carolsanford.com and find access to other resources. And so if you, I'm saying something, I may have a paper on it. I've written hundreds of papers, literally, many of which are published only internally to a corporation. Some of them are proprietary that I make a part of working with a client. But I always, if someone sends me an email and says, could, could you, and I'm, I probably can't follow up and talk to people, but I certainly could share anything I've done in writing if people just ask at carol at carolsanford.com. And then, of course, there are your books that detail this in, would you say it's a general language or more focused towards people who are already involved in business? People tell me that my books are so easy to read, and I'll give you a, an explanation about why recently. I, can't, I can take credit for the ideas, but not the ease of its readability. The books are written in a way that anyone who wants to think better can read them. They are thoughtful. There are some parts of it which are dense, but they are not directed only at a business community. To me, a business is an instrument for change. So you will start reading. And by the way, some of the stories in the first book are about very tiny business, a small catering company who had, you know, they, they were known and they were doing okay in Seattle, but how we've grown them to the business that wins all the awards from best wedding, best venue, best catering, best supply system, you know, you just list it and they have won it. So it'd be another one about people who would like to scale their small business. And there I use that word I hate. Words matter. They want to grow their small business. So that, the first book, The Responsible Business, will guide almost anyone who is trying to find how to be in a reciprocal relationship with their world, which means I can do something that has value, which other people agree has value, and therefore they give me some sort of reciprocity to get to keep doing it. I mean, we call that money, but the money is not about the dollars. It's about the agreement we have for people to get to keep doing it. The second book, the Responsible Entrepreneur is 100% about small, small, small businesses. Sometimes they were really tiny when they started and decided to make huge changes on the planet in what I would call a global acupuncture method. Like, how do I enter a place here and do something that could change something on a very large scale? So you have Kip Baratov, who decided that the social system of economic development, especially along coastlines, was terrible that fishermen were losing their livelihood. We were losing the oceans. We were embedding it with farmed fish, which were going out to sea and creating great problems. Some even having, you know, even the process of getting them back upstream was being damaged. He started a small cooperative called Fish People, which was to have everyone who was involved in what I call the value-adding process be in the cooperative. It's not a legal cooperative, but it works that way, which is the fishing boat captain and the boat that the fisherman has rented usually, sometimes they own them, the system that was processing the fish, those that were canning the fish, those that were distributing the fish, and those which were buying, including Costco. And by the way, if you go into Costco and you pick up a fish people package, it has a QR code and it can tell you who that boat captain was. It can tell you what waters they were in when they caught it. It can tell you who processed it, who canned it, what boats or what movement it went through to get where it is, plus the metal content 
of that particular piece of fish in your hand. So they do looking to make sure that it meets federal regulations and way exceeds them, but they make that available transparently. Now that was a tiny, tiny business, which now, because they're in Costco and I'm getting them connected to Google and a few other folks, they're going to be able to make a huge difference from a very small way of thinking. That story is in the book. You will see the principles. So the book is not for people who already have a business language. It is probably a more living systems language. And then I have to make the people who have, quote, a business language reframe how they're using their traditional business language. The reason my books are so easy to read is I dictate them to a man named Ben Haggard, who is a permaculture practitioner. And he has been way back with Mollison. He and the community do use permaculture principles, so he knows nothing about business. But I dictate through the strange language I use. He literally you know, puts it in shorter sentences, rearranges it. He constantly asks me questions and tell me, you know, I don't get that. So I have a permaculture person asking me to make sense from the world I'm in, and it gets written with that clarity. So everybody who is a permaculture expert probably will read the book more easily than my business readers. It's incredible, all of the interconnectivity and the cooperation that gets from one place to another in the way that this living systems approach to business works. I'm so used to firm hierarchies and structures and that idea of do your job or get fired and not necessarily valuing the human being, but valuing their place as a number or a cog in the machine. So would you like me to describe to you how you have structure without hierarchy when you use living systems in a business? Not only for myself, but also for all of my anarchist friends. Yes. (laughs) Well, this is a way to have the highest order nature of anarchy. Okay, so I am not violently opposed to anarchy. I just think it's a little like capitalism in that the extreme drops out the higher order principles of it. So anarchy at its highest order is about people being self-determining. What gets missed is the living system's view of that, which is it's nested in holes that are larger than it in which it must be in reciprocity with. So in a business, the way I structure them is hierarchies go away because Hierarchies all come from the church and from the feudal system, you know, in the monarchy. Those were how people maintain control over other people. And because we know all of that didn't work, we throw kind of baby out with the bathwater. Hierarchies, if they are about hierarchies that make a difference, not people who have power, you have a radically different thing. So here's how I structure. Envision three concentric rings. The inner ring is an individual or maybe a couple of people who have a unique and distinctive essence, who being inside of a business can see places they can make a huge difference to customers, to earth, to communities. And you notice I never say the earth because that objectifies it again. The living entity earth, I call those promises beyond ableness. They promise to do something for something that is larger and greater for which the business they have chosen to be a part of has committed to participate. So when I did work with TIO2 in the mining group of DuPont, the promise beyond ableness was to discover how it was that we could extract the titanium in a contractually uh, conscious relationship with Earth without destroying mountains, rivers, streams, and communities. 
it meant that we had people who promised to figure out how to create what turned out to be a proprietary technology, which made money for them, which went from taking down 90% of a mountain, basically, in order to get titanium, which everybody uses, including every anarchist friend you have, unless they eat no processed food, unless they never live indoors and or paint or coat anything. And for women, if they never wear anything that is designed to do something to improve or cover, like make up their skin, you will be using titanium dioxide. It's very, very, very hard not to. And it would take... So if you want to be able to use some of those things, particularly paint to protect the house, then we created a process which had people promise to do something at an individual level. Now, that's nested in the next ring with teams of resources who used to be called supervisors. They used to be called managers. But now their job is to be a resource to all of those people making promises that are designed to change and improve not only the life of the person who uses it, but the ecological system which they touch and which the manufacturing system touches. They bring capabilities. So like in Greece when we did this or in South Africa, we took what had been the bosses and they were the ones who did hold a certain set of knowledge because it had been made their power because they knew things. And their job now was to embed that into everyone in the team based on what it was they were seeking to do and uh, deliver with their promise beyond ableness. So now you've got a whole ring of people who are helping grow the promises that are being made to the world. The third ring is the strategy of the business. So where it's not anarchy is individuals don't decide they're going to do something. They have to do it in conjunction with a greater whole of which they're a part. And the strategy starts with the essence of the business, as I said earlier, the global imperatives. So they are presenting what they're going to do in a way that the global imperatives are lived out, in a way that the essence of that business is lived out, and the way their uniqueness is embedded in it. And because there is a, a distinctive place that business has chosen to be, they actually give stability and long-term viability, enduring returns to investors for that business. But all of them are lined up, starting with the essence and uniqueness, which is what anarchy is really about trying to bring back into existence. Let me do whatever I goddamn well please. Excuse me, I forget. I'm not supposed to swear here. But the whole nature of a real working system is not so much every man for himself, although the United States has a bit of that, and I literally do man, mean man there. The, what it's really about is this individual self-determination based on personal agency, internal locus of control, embedded in larger systems, which we collaborate in doing something together that makes it healthier for all. That's the kind of system I want to see, and that's how I literally structure a business working. Wow, I know. Wouldn't you like to live that way? You also mentioned Maslow earlier in the conversation, and there are certain times when I'm concerned because of how that paradigm affected many of the thoughts following his uh, hierarchy of needs. Compare that to something like the work of Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning that you can, you can exist without necessarily having all your needs met as long as you have something bigger than yourself, as long as you're part of this bigger whole. And where you took us through that conversation just reminds me of that. And it was, uh, Man's Search for Meaning was very influential on getting me to where I am now. Well, Man's Search for Meaning should be required reading for everyone as soon as they can read. 
And it is talking about there are no conditions under which consciousness cannot be, and conscience cannot be evoked and used as an evolution of a soul. That is, to me, Viktor Frankl's message to all of us. I, if I can do it in a concentration camp, I don't want to hear your excuses. I mean, he doesn't say that, but, you know, that's what you get. So Abraham Maslow had a good intention. When I read through, and I did this while I was working on a doctorate in psychology, I read through all of the words. There's probably only once or twice he says something like, you have to meet the lower needs in order to have the higher ones work. So I don't even think that was a driving force, but certainly it became how people have carried it out. But there was one other thing. And by the way, he was a colleague of one of my teachers who built, I think, a much more powerful hierarchy. And it's a, it's more nested. And it's an evolutionary developmental one rather than kind of fixed, like you have to get your basic needs met. But it, we talk about you have to, the only way self-actualizing actually happens is to work on system actualizing. If you can see a way you can help a system actualize, which is what my new book is about. How do you actualize systems that need to be changed, whole systems, and use it as the means of growing yourself? You probably, in today's world, in the first world countries, will not have massive problems with what I would call our basic needs being met. If you're in a third world country or a developing world country, then yes. But the logic of that our basic physical needs override and we cannot do anything else till we've met those doesn't fit with any cosmology I've ever studied. It doesn't really fit with any psychology except those people who did artificially constructed uh, dissertations and research using Maslow's needs to go prove it. But of course you bring your own mind into it. So I think I'm right there with you that I think we have to start more with what difference are we making to help a system be more whole and complete in its own evolutionary path, we will have meaning. And in the best of all worlds, and if we lived in community, we would have much more of our basic needs met. I have one more question, and this might wind up just being an aside I'm just interested in. Are you familiar with the work of Charles Eisenstein? No, tell me about it. Okay, he's a fellow who writes about gift economies. Oh, yes. I mean, I don't know his work, but I know gift economies, certainly. Okay. Then do you see a place for gift economies in business? Oh, well, I think they do exist in business. I think that the unfortunate part is that they have been constructed as like an appendage, and then they're called the foundation or the philanthropic part of the organization. If you think of the term reciprocity, which is more of a gifting economy, I mean, gifting is acknowledging the working of a system where if we keep putting in everything we can and each other person does that, all that is needed exists. In some way, I don't ever use that term in business, but I do talk to them about that what you want to look at is how it is that the people who buy from you, so in many cases, mine, let's like take Colgate-Palmolive in Europe, they have a variety of people they supply, like Carrefour, that, you know, which is their equivalent of Walmart. Not quite, but on scale, it's very large. Or mom-and-pop grocery stores. I get them to measure the effects external to their business. So instead of measuring their returns, measure how well the mom-and-pop grocery store or little corner market in France or Italy or you know Denmark can survive. And what is it you do that you give them 
I call them life-giving performance indices. So I'm hinting at that idea without saying, you know, give it all away. What I say is, if you give them life, you look at life as what you're giving them, and you ask, how do you back up along the way and structure your work so you can continue to do that? Now you're structuring off of the life-giving idea, not the extractive mindset. So it's the value-adding mindset. So for me, the gifting economy needs to be embedded. I tell them, if you're creating just philanthropy and you don't ask how it is you're doing that inside, it's like 10% or probably less of your money is going toward doing good while it's really having to do good because of the other 90% you're doing, which isn't. And it's true of every investor. I I advise investors a lot on how they can tell if a business is going to succeed because I know how to make them grow 30 to 60% in revenues a year. And I tell them how it is they're going to tell whether they're going to have a social impact, which would make the difference we need for them to make. And all of that is about really assessing, do they have life-giving performance indices of those they serve, not extractive performance indices of what they get? So I think that's very related, although I've never read Isaacson's work. Sounds like I should. And I believe his first book is available entirely online through his website. Okay, well, I'll get you to email me that detail, or maybe you want to say it so everybody who's listening. I don't have it offhand, but I'll include it in the show notes, and I'll send you a link to it. Thank you. Now all I have to do is work through this interview and then read your book so I can figure out how to apply all these ideas to a podcast. But thank you, Carol, for all the time that you've spent with me today. It's been an incredible kind of roller coaster ride for me, just the amount of information that you've shared that is similar and related to to what it is that I do, but seems so different because I've never heard so much expressed in the way that you did. And I really appreciate the time you spent with me. Is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation for the listeners before we draw this to a close? Well, there's one thing that might be fun for them to go do. It's an introductory quiz that you can take on entrepreneurship which is to determine what your favorite method is that you tend to pursue. So the archetypes in my book, I learned from my grandfather. I'm part Mohawk. I'm only 116th. And so, you know, it was great, great, great before we're back to pure blood chief. But my grandfather taught me about how taking on those archetypal roles can give you the courage and the power of significance in order to bring something to a higher state. So I wrote this book to help educate people about what it, how they could lift themselves to a way they can make a bigger difference. As a fun way to start it, I put a little quiz on my website at carolsanford.com where they can go answer, I think it's only 12 questions right now, it soon will be a couple of hundred so that we can make it a more research project. And it will sign you up for my newsletter so you will get things which I don't think you have to worry about being in the world of business. I have parents, I have all sorts of people who subscribe to this. But I think they should go take the little quiz and then you'll get back by email a little bit of a statement about what you tend to favor. You are not one of these archetypes. They are like a mantle that you try on. And then that way you could stay in touch. So I think that's probably the only thing I would say. I would love for them to read the book so that people can feel the sense of power they could have, even as a very small business owner. And again, thank you so much, Carol, for joining me. I really appreciate the conversation and the interview. I've learned a lot and I look forward to sharing it with the world. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. I, it's been great fun for me. And that was Carol Sanford. Again, you can find her and her work at carolsanford.com. 
and via the links in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. What stood out to me in this conversation is the role we can have as educators and also in finding our own essence. As educators, we can draw out the ideas that guide someone and help them to discover their best practices. Not only what works best for them, but also what matters. In understanding what matters, we can know what it is that they'll make time for. Tying that to responsibility can allow leaders to get more done in a way that benefits Earth, themselves, and everyone else. That idea of essence is important to me because it's something I've been working through as your host of this show. What's core to what I do? What is it that's bigger than myself that I enjoy so much about this work? For a long time, I thought it was about the interviews and the information, but the more I do this, the more it's about helping you on your path because of the connections that are made to different people and resources and the way that I can use my social capital to do so. It's why I share my email address, phone number, and mailing address with you nearly every episode. It's usually an oversight when I miss them, but it's because I want you to get in touch if there's any way that I can help you. It's part of my role in this world of permaculture to assist you in finding not only what it is that you want to do, but also to help you realize how you can do it. So what is it that you're currently working on? What do you think is your essence? I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, by phone, 717-827-6266, or send me a letter, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also join in the conversations at Facebook, facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, or follow the show on Twitter, where I am at permaculturecst. Until the next time, create a better world each day, the world you want to live in, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.